Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Now, I wonder, um, well, have you ever wondered really what heaven might actually be like? What, what will heaven actually be like? Uh, I, I think it's hard to nail down a clear, concrete picture. We kind of get glimpses, ideas. Hard to nail down a very clear picture. But there's one thing that I am confident of. I'm quite sure every single one of us here assumes it will be nothing like what we just heard read out in Judges chapter 19. Now, what we just heard read out for us, it it sounds more like a a vision of hell on earth, doesn't it? Quite confronting. And unfortunately, chapters 20 and 21 don't get a whole lot better. Uh, The events of chapter 19 end up triggering a civil war that brings Israel to the brink of extinction, and just really, it leads to more violence and more abuse. So whatever we imagine heaven might be like, it's something very different to the final chapters of the book of Judges. And yet, on the other hand, I think it's fair to say most people would instinctively associate heaven with the idea of being able to do whatever you want. No more limitations. Real freedom. The life you want. Doing as you see fit. At least in popular culture, I think, if I'd say if people assume there is such a thing as heaven, then they, they probably think it's a place where you finally get to, to do what you really want, not be held back. Uh, it's an instinct that flows from our profoundly individualistic culture um, of modern uh, Western uh, culture. Heaven, if it exists, well, it would be the freedom to do as you wish because your greatest good, the most important thing about your personal well-being is being able to Express yourself, isn't it? To be true to yourself. Have those limitations removed? Uh, And so modern morality, it revolves around removing obstacles to your self-expression and really, you know, condemning any ideology that stands in the way of that. Um, So long as you're not hurting anyone, it's your right to decide who you are, how you should live, what you should believe. You've got to be free to express yourself. Now, of course, that highlights one of the problems, doesn't it, uh, with modern morality? There's often a complicated tension between what I want, um, doing what I see fit, and the well-being of others around me, who decides whether I am actually hurting anyone else, or whether that hurt is more significant than the, the hurt that I experience not being true to myself. Uh, is it majority opinion? Is it the intellectuals? Is it the government? Is it myself? You see, what these final chapters of the book of Judges reveal is that everyone doing as they see fit, everyone being true to their desires, their ideas, well, that is far from heaven on earth. In fact, it leads to moral and social chaos. It's really the the worst of humanity unleashed. Uh, and as um, Ken explained, as, we, um, as I mentioned last week, that the final chapters of the book of Judges, from 17 through to 21, they, they form a kind of epilogue to the book as a whole. Uh, the stories of the judges have been told. We've seen that cycle of idolatry, oppression, and then rescue 
God's gracious rescue over and over again, but, but getting worse and worse till we end up with, uh, with Samson, that self-absorbed, indulgent judge who does more chaos, uh, who brings more chaos than peace, really, despite his great potential. And so then we get these chapters describing the reality of life for God's covenant people in this period, characterized by such idolatry and unfaithfulness. And uh, as Ken explained, the key refrain in these chapters is this statement, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. The statement comes up uh, right at the beginning, very early on in chapter 17, and it's the very last sentence of the whole book. And then we get the shorter version, Israel had no king, uh, in the middle of these chapters, marking the beginning of each new story. And the point is clear, this is what you get when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, when there's no real recognition of rule from above. And so chapters 17 and 18, well, they revealed the people of Israel shaping their spirituality, their religious worship as they see fit in their own eyes. And then chapters 19 to 21, they reveal the moral and social chaos that results from that. Individuals, mobs, whole societies determining what is right and wrong for themselves. And it's really not very pretty. Now for us, as we read these chapters and reflect on them, the key application, I think, is, is to heed that warning of this big picture, seeing where persistent idolatry and moral autonomy can take us. And the flip side of that is really gratefully embracing the very different way of life that God calls us to in Jesus, to gratefully submit to his good rule in our lives, seeing again how, how real freedom is living life as it's meant to be lived, according to God's wisdom, rather than simply doing as you see fit. But as we explore the unfolding narrative of the chapters, re reflecting on the, the motivations, the reactions, the reasoning and the decisions of the various characters, well, we see that there is also uh, all sorts of ways, big and small, that we can begin to head down that path of doing as we see fit. So these chapters are not just um, a warning to society at large, uh, they, they, they do hold up a mirror to our own sinful nature, confronting the impulses that each of us can struggle with day by day. So as we heard in the reading, the events of these chapters, it all begins with a Levite living in the hill country of Ephraim. We met another Levite last week uh, in the previous chapters. He wasn't very impressive. And as we learn, this guy isn't very impressive either. In fact, what you realise by the end of chapter 19 is that there are no heroes in this story. There's a victim, there are perpetrators of a terrible crime, and there are weak men who neglect the vulnerable uh, to save their own skins. There's no heroes. Now, the first half of the chapter, up to verse 21, it gives us the backstory. It sets the, the scene for, for what happens at the end. And as we read that first half, you know, we're kind of not quite sure what's going on. Why, why, why all this detail? It seems a bit meandering. Um, we're not quite sure where it's all headed. You know, we've got this Levite who takes a woman as a concubine, um, and then um, she's unfaithful, runs away from him, runs back to her parents. He goes after her um, months later, and she seems content to, to go back with him. Her father is delighted that the Levite has come to take his daughter again, and and he becomes this kind of over-the-top, socially awkward host, almost clinging to his 
son-in-law twisting his arm to stay night after night, day after day. But the Levite's had enough, even though it's late in the afternoon, he won't stay another night. And so that's why we then find a Levite and his servant and concubine travelling back north to Ephraim, trying to get as far as they can late in the day. And so they end up sitting in a square, in the city square, in a town of Benjamin, Gibeah, as night descends with nowhere to stay. Now the comment that no one took them in for the night, that's the first sign that things are not as they should be in this town. The hospitality is a bedrock of that culture. It was really quite unthinkable that no one would approach them and take them in. It reflected badly on the residents. But then all seems resolved. We get this old man comes in late in the day from his work in the fields. Um, happens to be from the same place as the Levite, from the hill country of Ephraim. He's now living in Gibeah. Um, so he comes in, he sees them, and he takes them in for the night. He provides food for their donkeys, he washes their feet, and they all settle down to eat and drink. And that's when, as we heard, things take a really dark turn. Suddenly this long, meandering story, we're not quite sure where it's all going, suddenly we see where it's all going. Um, wicked men from the city surround the house, pounding on the door, demanding the old man hand over his guests so they can sexually abuse him. I'm not given any explanation as to why they would want to do this, why they think they should be able to do it. It's just this disturbing reality that's reported to us. And all the more disturbing because it's an Israelite town. You see, the Levite, he, he deliberately pushed on later into the day, uh, going as far as they could so they could reach an Israelite town, Gibeah, not trust themselves to the, the hospitality of, of strangers, foreigners in Jebus. And this is the hospitality they receive in Gibeah. Now, at first, it seems like maybe the old man might be the one hero of this story, right? After all, he, he noticed them, he brought them in, he took care of them, he's a nice guy, uh, and now he goes out to confront the wicked men. As we read in verse 23, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Almost a hero, but sadly he doesn't stop there, does he? No, I'm, I don't know if the first time you ever heard this passage read or you read it for yourself, you, your mouth kind of drops a little bit at what he says next, right? Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Don't be so vile. Don't do this outrageous thing. To this man, but here are our women, do to them as you wish. He goes from hero to zero pretty quick, doesn't he? Now, we don't want to be uh, too self-righteous in our view of him. He was an old man facing a mob, no doubt fearing for his life. He probably felt he had to offer them something. Perhaps he knew he couldn't offer himself in the place of his guest, that they would just laugh at him and demand the younger man, uh, he lived in a patriarchal society which, which prized the honour of men and placed a lower value on the lives of women. So he, he does what he seems to think is right, the least worst option. But that says a lot, doesn't it? When one man thinks the most honourable thing to do is to offer his virgin daughter and another vulnerable woman to be sexually abused to protect another man. It's a sign that Social values have gone pretty far off track. 
But if we're shocked by what the old man has said, well, we're even more disturbed, aren't we, by what the Levite himself does next. See, the gang of men, they're not listening to the old man. They're still demanding that he hand over his male guest. So what does the Levite do? Does he tell his concubine and the, the young woman, the man's daughter, to, to hide in the house while he goes out to confront them? Does he pull the old man inside and bolt the door? Does he go out to reason with the men? Maybe go out, you know, swinging, doing what he can. No, he takes his concubine and sends her outside. He makes her face them to save his own skin. And so as we heard, they, they raped her. They abused her all through the night. So they let her go at dawn and she stumbles back at daybreak and collapses outside the door. Now, it's horrific to read. You don't need my help to be appalled at what, what we're reading here. But then what we read next makes it worse if that's possible. Verse 27, when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there's no answer. So the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Now, has the man been desperately, you know, peering out the window, wondering what's happened to his poor servant wife, feeling racked with guilt for what he's done? Has he been tossing and turning all night, unable to sleep? Has he gone out looking for her? No, he gets up after a night of peaceful sleep, opens the door to step out, continue on his way, seemingly without a thought as to what's become of his concubine. But as he goes out the door, oh, there she is. And so does he gather her into his arms, you know, checking if she's alive, taking her in, inside to care for her, revive her? No, he, he says to her lifeless form, get up, let's go. It's hard to imagine a more callous response, isn't it? Get up, let's go. And when there's no answer, he plonks her onto his donkey and sets off for home. There's two New Testament passages that come to mind for me in light of this story. I'm sure there's lots that would be relevant, but what came to mind for me, um, first of all, was Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul urges husbands to love their wives sacrificially just as Christ loved the church, to, to be willing to sacrifice themselves uh, for the well-being of their wives. And it's really hard to imagine a picture further from this ideal than what's described for us in Judges 19. And the other passage is the, the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan, who, who tenderly cares for the beaten-up man that he comes across, even though he is his social enemy. Now, against these ideals of Christian love, uh, for those closest to us and, and, and even for our enemies, Judges 19 reveals people using others as objects for their own gratification, for their own uh, self-protection. We see people taking advantage of positions of power, cultural and physical, uh, to, to gratify and to protect themselves at the expense of weaker, more vulnerable people. We see a callous disregard for the inherent dignity of all human beings. Now, hopefully, you don't see yourself easily in the actions and attitudes of the characters in this story. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that the, the basic impulses and instincts are there, aren't they? The temptation to use other people for our own benefit. 
to, to satisfy our own desires, to put our needs above the needs of others, to use positions of power for our own advantage, to care more about our own agenda, what, what we've got going on, than the well-being of others, to shrug our shoulders at the suffering of others so long as we're okay. And, and if these instincts are allowed to grow unchecked in our lives, they can, they can take us to pretty dark places. When everyone does as they see fit, it can get very ugly. So don't skip over the horrors of this story too quickly and fail to hear the ways that God is prodding us to, to just pull back from that path, to, to steer well clear of that kind of way of life in the first place, to embrace something very different. So we haven't quite finished the story of the Levite and the concubine, have we? See, there was that last, in a sense, most disturbing scene of all. Verse 29, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine... We must do something, so speak up. Now, what possesses the man to do this gruesome thing? From how he's behaved so far, we suspect it's not because, of his out, not because he is out of his mind with grief. No, the, the, the cold, callous description of him calmly cutting up her body and sending them off throughout Israel, it really matches his cold, callous treatment of her so far, doesn't it? So what we see here, it's actually a calculated move to create a big reaction, a reaction that he gets. The nation is understandably disturbed. Everyone's talking about it. And then uh, from the, the beginning of chapter 20, we see the result. All Israel, from top to bottom, east to west, they, they come together, they assemble as one before the Lord in Mizpah. It's a national, religious, and military gathering. It's a, a gathering of Israel for holy war. And they ask how this awful thing has happened. Uh, and so the Levite, he gladly gives his version of events. I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. And during the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, did you notice the subtle differences between his retelling of the story and what we heard in chapter 19? It's no longer just a few wicked men of the city, but the men of Gibeah who have done this terrible thing. And he's just a helpless victim. They intended to kill me, and they raped my concubine, and she died. No mention of him thrusting her out the door to protect himself. No mention of the fact that she may well have been alive after her night of torture, while he slept soundly. No mention of his terrible neglect. It's these awful men of Gibeah. That's why I cut her into pieces and summoned you all. And so verse 7, he finishes, Now all you Israelites, speak up and tell me, what have you decided to do? The fact is that this Levite is manipulating Israel to get vengeance on the whole city of Gibeah. Now, of course, they're not innocent, but in reality, neither is he, is he? And yet he pleads innocence. He uses his concubine one last time in the most disturbing of ways to serve his 
self-interest, his agenda. And it works, doesn't it? All the men rise up together with one voice, vowing that they will not return home till the city of Gibeah and Benjamin pays for their crime. Uh, and so first they give the tribe of Benjamin a chance to do the right thing. In verse 12, in chapter 20, we read, the tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. So the, the grotesque actions of a gang of worthless men in Gibeah, compounded by the cowardly and cow callous actions of the Levite, have led to full-blown civil war. All of Israel has turned out to destroy one of their own tribes, which has dug in to defend to death um, their own, whether or not they deserve this kind of protection. And whilst on the surface it seems like an understandable course of action, you know, perhaps even a righteous response to this evil act committed in Gibeah, well, it's not entirely clear that we're on the path to justice here. See, we know, don't we, that Israel has been manipulated by the half-truths of a self-interested man who's keen to make a city pay for what happened to him. And Israel, they only seem too happy to be manipulated. It's kind of sad that this is the first point in the whole book of Judges that the whole nation has assembled together for war. They've been half-hearted and quarrelsome in the face of fighting their enemies, but when it comes to destroying their own, well, they're united like never before. And they don't really seek God's wisdom. Not, not really. When they inquire of the Lord, they don't ask whether they should, in fact, be going to war against the Benjamites. They presume they should, and they simply ask who should go first. And, and so I think what we see happening next is God actually handing the Israelites over to their own rashness. He allows them all to suffer at their own hands. He tells Judah to go first, but he doesn't promise them victory. And so day one of the battle turns out really bad for the Israelites. The Benjamites cut down 22,000 of them, seemingly without losing any uh, of their own men. And after this shocking setback, the Israelites, they, they rally again, um, but with some sense of confusion. Now they weep before the Lord and, and ask, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? And it's like they're starting to recognize what they're doing, who they're actually fighting. But God doesn't let them off. The Lord answered, go up against them. Again, he doesn't promise victory, but he tells them, keep going. And it's another terrible day for the Israelites. The Benjamites cut down another 18,000 of them. Now the Israelites are really shaken, and the whole army goes up to Bethel, where the ark of, the God, of God is, and the priests are ministering, and they fast, and they weep, and they cry out to God, and they say, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? And at this point, it's like they're kind of offering God a suggestion. Perhaps, maybe we should stop. Should we stop, Lord? But again, God tells them to go. 
Only now he tells them that they will, he will give them into their hands. And so then from verse 29 to verse 27, uh, 47, we're not going to read it, you can read it later if you want, we get this detailed account of the battle on the third day where Israel sets an ambush for Benjamin, they put, they put the entire city of Gibeah to the sword, they send it up in smoke, and, and then they completely destroy the whole Benjamite army. Uh, in the end, after Israel chases down the enemy, um, slaughtering 25,100 men, only 600 soldiers are left, uh, and they escape to hide off in the wilderness uh, in the Far East. Um, so it's a complete slaughter. But that's not enough at this point for the Israelites. In the final verse of chapter 20, we read, verse 48, the men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. You see, Israel treats the whole tribe of Benjamin like one of the Canaanite nations they were supposed to destroy when they entered the land. In fact, they are far more ruthless with Benjamin than they ever were with the original inhabitants. They wipe the tribe off the face of the earth in a rage of self-righteous and vengeful fury. They, they make them pay for those first two days. But as their blood cools, they suddenly start to think, maybe we went a little far. At the beginning of chapter 21, we hear about an oath that the men of Israel had taken at Mizpah when they gathered to hear from the Levite about this great injustice. Uh, and each of them swore, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. Now, the last time we heard about an oath in the book of Judges made in preparation for battle, it didn't turn out very well. Do you remember? Jephthah. Jephthah foolishly paved the way for his daughter to be sacrificed. And, and then he went, he went ahead with it in order to save his own honour. A young woman suffered at the hands of a foolish and proud man who was ignorant of what God really wanted from him. And now as all of Israel wrestles with the consequences of another rash oath, it is again women who suffer. The final part of the story opens with the people of Israel back at Bethel, uh, the house of the Lord, weeping before God at what has happened. Lord God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Why indeed? Yeah, they've got pretty short memories, don't they? Perhaps it was because they ruthlessly went from town to town, slaughtering everything that moved. Yes, God brought judgment on Benjamin, and on Benjamin through the Israelites in battle, but they had no command from God to destroy the entire tribe. And now that they've cooled down, they realize they're in a bit of a bind. They've gone too far. There's only 600 men from Benjamin left, and, and they've killed all the women and children. And what's more, they've taken an oath not to give any of their own daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. Again, they seem more concerned to honor this oath of their own making, something that God didn't ask for, than they ever were concerned to honor God's command not to give their sons and daughters in marriage to the Canaanite people. That's just another tragic irony in this story. So rather than break their oath, they search desperately for another solution. And one suddenly comes to mind as they're gathered at Bethel. Didn't we also swear an oath at the time that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah should be put to death? Now which tribe or clan failed to assemble? 
And as it turns out, no one from the city of Jabesh Gilead. Um, it's a city with connections to the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, they didn't send any representatives to the assembly. Well, 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 they think this is the perfect solution. Rather than break our oath, we will go and destroy that city, putting everyone to death, except for the young unmarried women. We'll take them and we'll give them to the Benjamites who have survived so they can keep their tribe alive. Now, the irony of killing more civilians to solve the problem of killing too many civilians, that doesn't seem to appear to them. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead to put to sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Rimmon. That's where they'd escaped off to. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. So everything's wrapped up, a nice happy ending. Except, of course, for all the men, women and children who were executed for dubious reasons and the young women who were taken captive and handed over to strange men as their wives. But the Israelites, they don't seem to be aware of how hollow their morality is at this point. They're scrambling for a way out of a bad situation and feel they are justified in their actions. Unfortunately, however, even now, after all this, their problems are not over. When the Israelites send the peace offering to the Benjamites and hand over the women they've brought, they realize they were not enough for all of them. Oh dear, after all that, the people of Israel are back at square one. They grieve for Benjamin, determined that their tribe should not be wiped out. They must have heirs an inheritance in the land, and yet they can't possibly break their oath. We can't give them our daughters as wives. It's just not possible. And once again, a creative solution dawns on them, one that seems to solve all the problem without requiring them to break their honour or you know, bring curse on themselves. But look, verse 19, there's, there's this annual festival of the Lord at Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona, and so they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees one of them to be your wife, then return to the land of Benjamin. Now, when their fathers and brothers complain to us, as you can imagine them complaining, we will say to them, Do us the favor of helping them, because we did not get wives for them during the war. You'll not be guilty of breaking your oath, because you didn't actually give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. Now, is it any wonder that when we get to Jesus and he's teaching about what it really means to, to live in God's kingdom, he says, don't take oaths. <laughs> Just be a person of truth and integrity. Now, first, it's the men, women, and children of Jabesh Gilead that are sacrificed so that they can get around their oath whilst technically keeping it. And now it's the young women of Shiloh. Their, their solution, it's so hypocritical and so ridiculous that it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic and appalling. And that's the end. Not just of this sad story, but the whole book. That's the scene that we're left with. 
the Benjamites steal wives for themselves and everyone goes home and settles down. And so the author concludes with that statement. That just seems like a perfect summary of what we've read. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's, that's what's going on here. Everyone doing as they see fit. Individuals, gangs, cities, tribes, a whole nation deciding what is best for themselves rather than submitting to God's wisdom, to God's ways. And so as I indicated at the, at the start, these chapters highlight for us how dark things can get when we put ourselves in charge. Everyone doing as they see fit is not heaven on earth. It's more like hell on earth, just depending on how far we let ourselves go. And, and so for me, reading these chapters, first and foremost, I'm conscious of God prompting me to be thankful for Jesus, rescuing me from, really from myself, from my desire to call the shots. These chapters help me to be thankful for the lordship of Jesus, for God's perseverance in, in bringing me back under his good rule, uh, for his spirit who teaches me to submit to his wisdom, to his ways, to his word. In his letter to the Romans in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is explaining how God's grace in Jesus, it, it doesn't just set us free so that we can sin without consequences. No, God's grace sets us free from sin itself so we can be slaves to God and his righteousness. He writes, Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin uh, and you were free from the control of righteousness, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things that result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. The result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, breaking free from God's law, crowning ourselves as the kings and queens of our own morality, that's not actually freedom. It's slavery to sin and impurity. It's a way of life that leads to pain, to shame, to death in the end. And at first, hearing that in Christ you've become slaves of God doesn't sound great. Who wants to be slaves of anyone? But it's a metaphor, isn't it, for willingly submitting ourselves to his rule in our lives. So the irony is that true freedom comes from willing service and submission to God and his ways. It's like a train running on the tracks or a fish staying in the water. It allows us to embrace our true humanity. Real, lasting life is found in embracing God's good rule in every facet of our lives rather than doing as we see fit, putting ourselves in charge. Another thing I think we notice from these chapters uh, in particular is the consistent way that women and vulnerable people suffer at the hands of the powerful when everyone does as they see fit. You see, from beginning to end, Judges 19 to 21 is a story of women suffering at the hands of evil, cowardly, and ignorant men, isn't it? A Levite takes a, concubine to be his, uh, takes a woman to be his concubine, and then it gets much worse for her from there. And in the final scene, 200 or so men literally grab young women and run off with them, forcing them to be their wives. 
When everyone does as they see fit, the interests, desires, the well-being of different people come into conflict. And when that happens, it's the more powerful party that wins, isn't it? Again and again. And so moral autonomy, doing what seems right in our own eyes, well, that, that consistently works out badly for women in society. And so the sexual revolution of the 20th century, where that you know, stuffy old sexual morality of the, the church and traditional society that was thrown off, that was meant to be a liberation for women. But it's, it's only allowed men to, to prey on women with less consequences. If you remember from our series, the air, the, the air We Breathe, it's not our modern obsession with individualism that has laid the foundations for respect for women and protection for the vulnerable in society. No, it's the lordship of Jesus. It's his values of equality, compassion, kindness, and humility lived out amongst his people. That's what transformed the world. That's what transformed our attitudes towards women. If we want what's good for women, children, and the vulnerable, we won't encourage people to do what's right in their own eyes. We will encourage them to listen to the God who made them and to submit themselves to the good, wise, and loving lordship of Jesus. And finally, as we finish, uh, the overall point of these chapters, uh, in the context of the whole book, it's to heed that warning against idolatry and persistent sin. Uh, in the introduction to the book, we saw the stark warning that compromising in our obedience to God's word and offering cheap repentance, well, that has very real and disastrous consequences. But in the, in the introduction, it was given in the abstract, wasn't it? We were told in general terms where it would head. In these final chapters, we, we see it in the flesh, and it's disturbing. These chapters reveal the consequences of compromising God's commands, trivializing sin, trivializing idolatry in our lives, continually offering God cheap, empty apologies. It leads to spiritual blindness and moral chaos. So we don't want to be naive. Heed the warning now and again and again. Uh, when, whenever you need to, pick up the book of Judges and be reminded where that kind of thinking will take you. Be thankful for Jesus. Be thankful for the, the real salvation that he offers us. Don't take it for granted. Uh, if nothing else, the book of Judges should help us be thankful for the salvation that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for saving us from ourselves and from everyone doing as they see fit, for bringing us back under your good, wise, loving rule. And we pray that you might help us to embrace that more and more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.